Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union label. That's to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today while he's on assignment. You can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero, and you can find my writing at Breitbart.com. Well, the presidential race for the next election in 2024 on the Republican side, most people are handicapping this at this point as basically a Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis race. Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida. Uh, Mr. DeSantis has not actually declared a candidacy yet, and no one's really entirely certain whether or not he will. At this point, it's all the horse racy stuff that political pundits love. So they study what everybody's doing, and they look for signs and portents and where they're visiting and whether or not they go to CPAC and whether they give a speech here or there. Uh, Governor DeSantis did not go to CPAC, so that was supposed to be one reason why maybe he isn't going to run for president. But then other people said, why would he go there? Because that's all Trump supporters these days, and he'd be walking into the lion's den. So you get all these uh, prognostications that are going on out there, trying to figure out who will who will run and really whether anyone can beat Donald Trump. That is the question. He is still the presumptive favorite. He has declared his candidacy. He did so quite early in the race, and some people thought that hurt him a little bit, that he jumped in so early and said he's running. But on the other hand, everybody pretty much expected him to, so I don't think that really hurt him any. It just left him with a longer period of time to be the declared candidate in the race. In the end, that won't matter a whole lot. When it comes down to brass tacks, when the primaries start, when the debates hit, no one is going to say, well, Trump got in first, so let's give him five extra brownie points. That isn't really how voters and certainly not how the media make their decision about candidates. I think what is going to be important in this race, and it is something I think people will think about, and I I come here not to bash either Trump or DeSantis if he runs or anybody else. I don't want to dissuade anybody else from running. There are a couple of other declared candidates, and there will be more by the time all this is over. But here's what you guys have to do if you want to get the base on fire. You have to tell them that you're going to win and do something with it. And it's the do something with it part that we're tired of not getting. This is what you hear from every committed Republican activist out there, including the ones that are very strongly in favor of one or the other of the declared candidates. There are a lot of people who are very much in favor of Donald Trump running again. They plan to vote for him. And they'll tell you that one of the reasons that they love him is because he seems like he's willing to do stuff after he wins. He'll actually make moves. And his presidency certainly was not without its accomplishments. He did get some pretty important things done, he started what could have been a pretty significant political realignment if it had been given time. And it wasn't because of the coronavirus. Hard to remember now, because of course 2020 dominates everybody's memory of how the Trump years ended and the coronavirus pandemic. But before that, some of President Trump's policies were building this genuine tectonic shift in the way politics work. The Republicans were becoming increasingly the party of the working guy, and the Democrats were losing that constituency and losing it in different demographics, different racial demographics. The Hispanic vote, most famously, was shifting sort of glacially but inexorably towards the Republican 
Republicans under Donald Trump, Hispanic voters seem to really like him and like the effects of his policies. And one of the reasons that was happening is that Trump was setting about creating an economy where people were working, where they were positive and upbeat about the economy, and where they were positive and upbeat about capitalism. And Trump would, of course, occasionally talk about it this way or would, would tout himself as this example of, of capitalist success, being a businessman. That's certainly what a lot of his voters would say. His ardent supporters often point to his business career and say, we needed a businessman in the White House, and it's exactly what we got, and we need that again if we're going to dig out of this hole that Joe Biden dug for us, which is all good thinking. I mean, that's that's kind of what we do need, somebody who can make those things happen. But then you can look at the Trump years and look at the things he didn't do. And there are some of his ardent supporters, for example, who think he really whiffed on immigration. He talked about it a lot. He ran on it. It was almost his signature issue, almost his sole issue for a while during the 2016 campaign. But then once he got into office, he didn't really deliver on a lot of the things he said he was going to do. And that hurt him. That hurt him because he got all the grief for being an immigration restrictionist and for wanting to get tough on the border, but he didn't actually make it happen. So you could say he paid the political price, but he didn't get the results. And of course, if you want someone who is an exemplar of that line of thinking, you could look to Ann Coulter, who's a writer. She was a very a big supporter of President Trump during 2016. She wrote a book about it called In Trump We Trust, where you know he's the only guy that could beat Hillary, and she was four square in his corner. And then she became rather sour on him over the ensuing years and now does not think much of him. And that's one of the big reasons why, because he didn't actually follow through with immigration. And I think there's a point to be made there. There's a real difference between being in office and being in power. Being in office means you won the election. Oh, yay. Good deal. You won the election. Woo. -hoo. But then what are you going to do once you get there? And you probably can't do everything you promised. I mean, no matter how hard you try even if you really want to, even if you're completely sincere in your campaign promises, you're probably not going to be able to do it all. I don't think you could point at too many presidents who could say that they accomplished 90% of their agenda. You know, you're going to have to make some compromises. You're going to have to pick your fight. You're going to lose a few. You're going to have people from your own party that they don't go along with it in Congress. You're going to have some uh, strife. The public may change its mind about certain things after you get elected. The, the public opinion may shift in a way that you didn't like. These things happen to everybody. The important thing is that once you're in office, are you going to wield the power of the office to actually change the game? If it's a football metaphor, are you going to gain some yardage? Are you going to go for a first down? Are you going to move the ball down the field and go for a goal? Or are you just going to kind of sit there and, you know, three plays and then you're out and it's a turnover? And that's all too often what Republican presidencies end up looking like, even if they start with great promises. Very often, the Republican office holder doesn't really move the ball on anything meaningful. I think part of the problem there is that some of them don't really believe in those meaningful fights. That's where you get your Republicans in name only, your rhinos, that so many GOP voters don't like, that they claim to be conservatives, but they aren't really, and they don't actually do anything. If they do anything at all, they wind up helping the left. At best, they make a deal with the left, and they say, okay, you guys can have 80% of what you wanted, and then they expect us to applaud You know that that's some kind of a victory. So they aren't really getting things done, and that then is why a lot of people like Ron DeSantis. 
Republicans. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has been doing a pretty good job. I wouldn't say a flawless job. That's a lot to say about anybody. But he's been doing a pretty good job of picking fights and following through. He doesn't just pay the price for speaking up. He actually is doing things that are changing the game. And you can tell it's working because his critics are losing their ever-loving minds. You've got the people out there already uh, on the left that are writing articles saying, DeSantis, well, he's worse than Trump. <laughs> Why well, Trump is, is the soul of moderate reason compared to this DeSantis guy. And, you know, sure, some of that is because they think Trump is more beatable and they want him to be the candidate because he lost to Biden once and they think he'll lose again if he, if he, if he runs. So there's some cynical calculation going on there. But I think some of that, that uh, leftist recoil against DeSantis is because they recognize that he's doing what they do. He's actually picking a fight he can win. He's lining up his pieces. He's getting it done. He's getting legislation passed. He's, he's doing things that matter. And then he knows that it's going to work. And that's pretty important. You know, if you're going to implement a policy, it's not only got to be something that you think is strategically important, but you got to think the people are going to like this once they get it. And that's something that, that DeSantis has. He's very good at that. He knows that once this policy goes through, he's got the majority support of the people of Florida behind him. There's a tiny minority of, of kooks that doesn't like, you know, what he's doing and things like education. And he's not that worried about them. He knows this is going to work and that parents are going to be pleased with the outcome of the reform he's putting through. And he's picking important subjects like education, like the left-wing ideological penetration of business and media. And he's fighting back on those grounds. And there's no reason that Donald Trump can't do that too. If he's going to run a campaign on those grounds, he could certainly uh, profess to follow the same strategy. He was in office for four years and he didn't really win a whole lot of fights like that, except the big one that he was winning up until the pandemic came along. He was deliberately or not strategically or not, you know, happy accident or whatever you want to say about it. But he was realigning politics because his economy was getting more people involved in capitalism and they were beginning to understand how important it was. It was a vibrant demonstration of how the private ownership of capital, it's what capitalism is. That means you got a job and you don't work for the government. That means you're not dependent on some government policy or giveaway or subsidy or handout. You're actually starting your own business or you're working for somebody who did or you're working for a company that expanded dramatically because it saw new opportunities. That's pretty exciting. You know, that gets people engaged. And once they start valuing capitalism, once they start seeing how this works and benefits them, they want more of it. And that begins to shift the political conversation. And I think Trump was doing that in a profound way during a lot of his term in office. Then the pandemic came along. We all know what happened next, you know, blew the legs out from the economy. Some people blame Trump for taking bad advice on lockdowns and, and so forth, destroying the economy, whoever's fault it was. The bottom line is that we came out of it in one of the deepest authoritarian statist holes we've ever been in under Joe Biden. And if we're going to come back out, we need somebody that doesn't just want to fight but somebody who knows how to win. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. This message is provided by Beringer Ingelheim. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is one of the more common forms of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with symptoms including breathlessness during activity, a dry and persistent cough, chest discomfort, fatigue, and weakness. 
There are more than 200 lung disorders that can lead to pulmonary fibrosis, an irreversible scarring of lungs that can negatively impact lung function, quality of life, and may become life-threatening. While approved treatments for people living with these diseases can help slow disease progression, new therapies are needed to help potentially stop progression. Fortunately, there is new research underway to assess the safety and efficacy of an investigational treatment in patients with IPF and other progressive ILDs. This is part of Beringer Ingelheim's Phase 3 Global Global Fibronir program. To learn more about Fibronir and eligibility requirements, visit fibronir-ipf.longboat.com and fibronir-ild.longboat.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math that aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States including yours, but they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me online at DOC underscore zero on Twitter. 
Well, this weekend brought the horrible story of some Americans, four Americans, who were taken hostage while they were in Mexico. Two of them were killed. The other two returned from the experience, quite traumatized, so they're safely back in the United States now. And a lot of people hearing this story are wondering, how could this happen? And a lot of people are watching the response of the Biden administration and finding it bizarrely muted. The uh, the Biden State Department uh, put out a statement that said uh, killing two Americans as hostages is unacceptable. Uh, really? Wow, that's some strong language, guys. You you think you might want to want to tone that down a little? I mean, it's just been a, it's a bizarre story, and unfortunately, it's not a unique story. Here with us to talk about the situation is Janet Sanders, financial software executive and proprietor of a travel advisory site called MexiNoInfo.com that warns American travelers of the dangers they face by visiting various parts of Mexico. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Hi, John, and thanks for having me. So this is just a horrifying story, this business of these people that were taken hostage. Did they just go someplace they shouldn't have been? I think this is a, as horrifying as the story is, I think it's a much-needed glimpse behind the curtain of what's actually going on down in Mexico. What Americans got to witness all over the news down in Matamoros the other day happens in Mexico on a daily basis. There are more Americans murdered in Mexico than any other country in the world, and less, less than 2% of those murders will ever be investigated or prosecuted. So what you saw, I wish I could say it was the exception, but it's the norm. And the cover-up you're seeing that's following, that this was just mistaken identity. No, it wasn't. This was a kidnapping attempt that's gone wrong. Anybody who's been following Mexico and following the cartels jockeying for position know that these cartels need money, and kidnapping and kidnapping Americans has been a great source of that. Over the last three years, we've seen double the amount of kidnappings um, on the streets of Mexico of Americans. And the sad thing is, is our government knows about this. Most of these statistics I'm giving you, I got directly off the Secretary of State's website. So... It seems like the response is so, so uh, downbeat. You know, they're not – the government, the administration is not really that upset about this. They they said it's bad, but they're not hopping mad. They're not saying what they're going to do. Like they're not going to say they're going to do anything to make people safer anymore. And the cynical observer wonders if this is because they just don't want to draw any attention to what they've done to the border. I mean if Mexico is this dangerous, then it stands to reason Joe Biden's wide open border is bringing those dangers onto American soil. And he, he and his party and his administration don't want people talking about that. John, I'm actually surprised anybody is surprised over this. Is not the response from the administration right now part and parcel with what their policy has been ever since Biden was elected? I mean, is this not right in line? So we can go from not only the borders being open, but right down to Ovidio Guzman, El Chapo's son being arrested. Now, I don't know if you remember, but just a month ago, he was supposed to be handed over to the United States, and instead our president was chastised on a global stage. No, this, this is – he has no intention of doing anything to stop these cartels, and everybody's got to ask this question, why? These cartels are now in the United States. It is only a matter of time before Americans start seeing on our streets what you witnessed happen to Madam Morris. And the sad I... thing is when you watch that, do you notice how long it took them to load those bodies into the truck? They weren't worried about the police showing up because the police knew all about this. They're part – of the problem. They work hand in hand with these cartels, either turning a blind eye or actually lending them a hand for these crimes. Now, I thought I saw the Mexican government make a statement this morning that was something to the effect of telling the Biden administration to calm down, to not make a big deal about this, like, you know, just, just let it go. 
Well, again, that doesn't surprise me. If he saw my ammo's response, the first thing he tried to do was slur these people. He tried to say that they were over there, and it was a backhanded insult for medication, which wasn't the case. She was going down there for a medical procedure, and it was completely legit. So as soon as I saw ammo's response, I knew just like every other attack on Americans that takes place on Mexican soil that this was going to be brushed under the rug. And you just see AMLO pushing that. AMLO has no respect for President Biden. AMLO respects the cartels that he serves, period. And that's exactly who that nod is to. And to think that this is anything different is wrong, and it's short-sighted, and it's dangerous. And you have, uh, as a contrasting example, you have El Salvador, where they had an enormous problem with gang violence for many years, and the current president, Nayib Bukele, decided to get serious about it. He built this gigantic mega prison. He started arresting gangsters left and right. And now El Salvador says it goes entire weeks without a single homicide. And yet the human rights community then says, well, they're they're too rough. They're, they're playing too harsh. Their system is unfair. Too many innocent people are getting scooped into that mega prison. And you wonder, where's the happy medium? What can you do to reduce gang violence other than make war on the gangs? The sad truth of this is, first of all, that would never work in Mexico because the cartels are too powerful. The cartels not only are financially more, uh, more powerful than the government, but they have better arms. They are armed with U.S.-grade military weapons. So if they ever tried to implement that kind of a solution, they would just annihilate the government and replace them with another one. Now, if this is going, this has gotten so big that the only way to fix this at this point, I'm afraid, is just to declare these cartels, um, terrorist groups, and for the U.S. government to actively go after them. And I would think that the number of U.S. deaths is enough to justify that. And this one should be the last because it was well, mortified. That might be a tough sell to Americans who aren't eager to get into ground combat on the other side of the Mexican border, especially because the Mexican government would never allow it. They would never agree you know, to let us send troops in there and start taking these guys out. And also, as a little uh, practical problem, we've sent most of our military budget to Ukraine. So I don't know that we have the resources to make war against the Mexican cartels right now. Isn't that interesting? Because the real threat is right below our border. Like I said, this is going to eventually spill over onto American streets. You will one day in the very near future see these cartels take on U.S. law enforcement, law enforcement agents on our streets. And at that point, everybody's going to wish that we'd gone after them when we could have. And that's really the problem. It's a question of timing. And this problem has been left alone to fester for so long that we've reached the situation that you're describing. And besides declaring the cartels a terrorist threat, do we need to start talking about declaring Mexico a failed state? I mean, it seems ridiculous to give the Mexican president credibility as a statesman, as a leader, as, as the president of Mexico, when he really isn't, when he's only really there because the cartels are amenable to him sitting there and he's a dead man the minute he crosses them. If Mexico is his bad, as you say, then how can they be allowed to participate in international forums as though they were a functioning state? The latest that just went on with the voting um, change that he wanted to make during getting away with um, with uh, voter IDs, the Mexican people are up in arms. They know the whole reason AMLO is trying to do that is because he doesn't plan on letting go of power ever. And the cartels don't want him to let go of power ever. They've got a very, very friendly president in Mexico right now. And you're 100% right. They should be treated as, as a nation who's not friendly to us because they are not. 
Well, from a geostrategic compressor or perspective, the other problem with approaching Mexico that way is that it would risk driving it into the arms of hostile countries like China, like Russia, that are looking to build influence in, in Central America, South America. Iran is very interested in doing that. So I guess they're worried that if they're, they go too hard on the Mexican government, then they'll just take their ball and go looking for other global patrons, and that would become an even worse security threat on the border. It is quite an intractable mess, and it's hard to see any easier, quick solution to the problem. Janet Sanders, financial software executive and proprietor of the MexinoInfo.com travel advisory site. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Hayward, sitting in for Alan today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along on this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. The new Mayo Clinic diet has been named among the top diets by U.S. News and World Report. Dr. Donald Hensrud, medical director of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, explains what makes their program so effective. Our new Mayo Clinic diet, built by a team of doctors and medical experts, focuses less on counting calories and more on empowering users with the knowledge and ability to maintain a healthy weight. Members get access to exclusive content and videos from real Mayo Clinic doctors, healthy recipes, tracking tools, and the popular Habit Optimizer that helps users substitute old unhealthy habits with healthier ones, all through a mobile app. Instead of fad diets or crash diets that rarely work for very long, our book and online program and app helps you adopt principles for a healthier way of life, which is really the secret to long-term success. Curious to know how healthy your diet is? The Mayo Clinic has an easy three-minute quiz. Go to mayocliniciet.com to find out. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. 
Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today while he's on assignment. Well, the January 6th tapes have inspired a little more discussion about how the government and the media covered the events of January 6th after the election. But let us not forget that there are people on January 6th who did go across the line. They, they committed acts of vandalism. They did things they shouldn't have done. And because the government is now being caught lying to us about some of what happened in the media and suppressing information, and now we're finally getting to see the tapes and we're finally getting to see the whole truth and we're, we're finding out that it's a little more complicated of a story than we thought it was, there is still a story to be told here about people who broke into the Capitol that absolutely should not have done that, and those people should be held legally responsible for their actions. So should all rioters. And that's a really important point. See, you can't have the American ideal of free association, the right to protest, the right to demonstrate, the right to get together for a cause, for something you believe in. You can't have that right without the responsibility to do it peaceably, because that's the magic word. If you assemble for politics and you are peaceful, which means you obey the laws, you don't block traffic, you don't damage anything, you don't hurt anybody, you just get together and you demonstrate, you wave your signs, play music, whatever you're trying to do, maybe get the media to pay some attention to you. As long as you're doing all that peaceably, you are persuading people or attempting to, maybe they won't listen to you, but you're making an effort to do that. You are assembling, and that is a sacred right in the American system. We believe in the right of political assembly, and we believe in it more forcefully than anybody else on the planet does. 
Likewise, with free speech, the United States is nowhere near what it used to be as a bastion of free speech, I hate to say, but for a long time, we were undisputably the freest place in the world to speak. And we probably are still up there, you know, it's one one of the freest, even though the overall state of free speech is looking pretty bad around the world these days. So we have this right of free assembly, but that comes with the inherent responsibility for everyone involved in a political assembly, in a march, in a protest, a demonstration, what, what have you, to behave themselves, to not go over the line, to not hurt people. Because once you're breaking things and hurting people, you are not persuading anymore. You are coercing and coercive force is wrong. Forcing people to do things is wrong. You don't get to force people to agree with you or even to listen to you. And it's really weird, but over the last uh, 20, 30 years, I guess, it's become increasingly necessary to explain to a certain class of, of younger leftists that they don't have the right to force people to listen to them. They constantly conflate that freedom. They, they have the right to speak, we all do, but they don't have the right to force you to listen, nor do they have the right to silence people that they don't like, but they think they do. And if you talk to some of these young leftists, they will tell you that unless they can shut you up for disagreeing with them, they don't have free speech. So you could talk over them, you could talk back to them, you could contradict them. And that's not allowed. Can't have that. Can't have people doing hate speech out there. That, that's against the First Amendment. I mean, you've got this whole generation of people that seriously thinks there's an invisible clause floating in the First Amendment somewhere that says all of this is null and void for hate speech, which is defined by the, the party in power. Whatever we decide is hate speech, no free speech rights for that. And they feel the same way about political assembly. If you're getting together and you don't agree with them, then that's wrong and bad and has to be stopped even if you're peaceable. And for an example of that, look no further than our old pals in the Tea Party. Remember the Tea Party? That was you know, 10, 15 years ago. You had the Tea Party movement, and they were the very model of a peaceable assembly. They were incredibly well-organized, polite. They cleaned up their messes after themselves. They would hold these huge rallies and demonstrations, and then they would pick up all the garbage after they were done. So like, you never even knew that they were there. And they had a, a message. They were quite insistent on the message they were delivering, but they, they weren't hurting anybody. They didn't riot. And the government, the, the party in power, the Obama administration, treated those people like they were Al-Qaeda. I mean, they were, they were considered a terrorist threat. And this was not subtle. They were openly accused of being dangerous anti-government seditionists that were going to cause all kinds of violence. Any minute now, any minute now, the Tea Party violence is going to bust out. Those guys in the three-cornered hats, they're going to start whipping out God knows what kind of gun, and they're going to kill everybody in sight. So they were treated like this, this terrorist threat. And, and their right of free assembly was challenged. So we should believe forthrightly in the right to assemble, to peaceably assemble, to persuade, to get your point across, to get draw some attention to yourselves. That's why you do it. You know, hopefully the media covers you and you get some coverage, some stories, some exposure for what you're saying. But once you turn violent, then that's crossing a line. That's wrong. You, you don't commit violence. You don't destroy things. And that needs to apply equally everywhere. Because right now, the message that we're getting post-January 6th is that only really applies if you attack the government. If you go to the sacred halls where the power elite gather together, well, you, you dirty deplorables, you can't go anywhere near that. But if your house gets burned down by a left-wing protester we agree with, then that's not so bad. You know, we're not, we're not that concerned with damage inflicted on private property out there in flyover country. It's only here in the imperial capital 
that you're really going to get roasted if you do anything to damage our property or inconvenience us or interfere with the, the workings of government. Was January 6th uh, an attack on the workings of government? Well, if you look at the video of it, it doesn't really look terribly well organized. I don't think anybody involved in this, we haven't proven yet that anybody involved in it had some master plan where they were going to stop the government from functioning, but they sure were inconvenient. I mean, they, they caused problems for everybody on Capitol Hill and everybody around them. But how come nobody cares when Black Lives Matter does that and they shut down a city? You know, they shut down the roads, they block hospitals. They did that during their, their marches, they would block hospitals. And we didn't hear any of these people that are endlessly whining about January 6th speak up and say, well, that's just wrong, it's intolerable. We can't let these people shut down streets and roads and barricade communities. When Antifa, this terrorist organization, they carved out a chunk of Seattle and declared it to be a different country that wasn't even the United States. And the media didn't consider that an insurrection. They didn't treat that as a, as a big problem. They didn't care about the violence. People got hurt. There were gunshots were fired. There were assaults. They didn't care. They, they didn't say anything like that. They thought it was cute. They thought it was funny. They, they're like, wow, look at these guys. They sure are committed activists, aren't they? They, they really believe in what they're doing over there in Chaz and CHOP and whatever they called that, that area. So this principle has to be applied universally. We have to respect everyone's right to assemble, everyone's right to speak, everyone's right to speak in unison, to get together with 500, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 of people who agree with you and do a march, do a demonstration, as long as you follow the rules, as long as you obey the law and you don't hurt anybody. It's really important that we allow you to do that. And most countries in the world don't. There, there are not many places on the planet where you could have a giant protest rally that is against the, the ruling regime, the ruling party, and not come out of it with getting beat up and shot and tased and whatever else. So you, we have a right to assemble, but we also have a responsibility. And that honestly is true of every single right. I mean, it's really obvious in the case of peaceable assembly, particularly because when you get a lot of people together and you get them riled up and, and they're, they're excited about something and why else would they be there? You know, if you're going to get thousands of people to assemble, they're probably pretty passionate about whatever it is that brought them all out that day. So it's far for the course. But if you're going to get all these people together and they're all fired up, you have an inherent danger there of this thing getting out of control. So it's really important that the people that organize the march that are influential with their, their followers and so on, that they're very clear with everyone that we're going to be peaceable. And the Tea Party did a fantastic job of that. They'll never get the credit they deserve for how huge some of their marches were and how orderly they were. Instead, the media kept framing them as, as wannabe murderers that were going to pop and turn into ISIS at any moment. But instead, they managed to keep these huge, passionate demonstrations well in hand. And that's what you have to do if you want to exercise that right of free assembly. Nobody should be attacking the U.S. Capitol or the Capitol of North Dakota or my house or your house or any anything else. No, nobody should be using destructive, coercive force to make people listen to their political message or to transmit to them this idea that all of this is non-negotiable. I'm not persuading you. I'm telling you what you're going to do. You got that quite a bit from Black Lives Matter. A lot of their messaging was not in any way meant to be persuasive. As far as they were concerned, you couldn't disagree with the message of the movement. You got that message from their corporate partners. All these businesses fell all over themselves to support Black Lives Matter after George Floyd, and they pumped millions of dollars into this organization, with, which its organizers probably stole and used to buy themselves nice houses. But they sent all this money to Black Lives Matter. And you remember all these companies were sending out emails and advertising, and they were saying, we support BLM 100%. 
no, no reservations, no questions asked. And you're not allowed to disagree with them. And if you disagree with them, uh, we don't want your business. You know, we don't want you doing business with our company if you're not 100% on board with this. There was no option. It wasn't persuasive. You didn't get to say no. It was coercive. And that's, that's the problem. That's the whole problem with any society that's teetering on the brink of turning into something darker and more terrifying. The rise of coercive force of people who think they have the muscle, they have the economic leverage, they have the legal power, they control enough government officials, they have a big enough street gang, whatever. They're going to force everybody to do it their way, to agree with them. And I find that really disturbing about a lot of this political indoctrination that we've had over the last couple of years, this DIE stuff that they're doing in companies. That's not persuasive. When you get invited to a diversity and equity lecture at your company, you have to go. <laughs> you can't refuse. And they're not going to have a discussion with you. They're going to tell you what you have to believe and you must indicate your agreement or, or you fail. You know, you, you're going to be tested. And if you don't say you're 100% on board, you're, you're in trouble. So that's not cool. And until we start scaling back the level of coercive force from everyone in our society, we're not going to have any kind of peace, any kind of harmony, or any real representative government. I'm John Hayward, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with The Alan Nathan Show. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, 
I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. The Biden administration is gearing up for the next big debt ceiling fight. They're fighting dirty, and it seems to me like there is more than a little desperation here, perhaps a surprising amount of desperation in just how far the Biden team is reaching to smear everybody who thinks maybe it's time to start reining in how much debt the U.S. government racks up. Here with us to take a look at these tactics is John Jordan, Chief Executive Officer of Jordan Winery, a lawyer and a Fox News contributor. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Well, happy to be here. It's a, you know, no holds barred and debt ceiling fights always are. Spoiler alert, they're going to get more debt. (laughs) I hope nobody is thinking that this will be the time that the government stops spending money it doesn't have. But it seems like the Biden team's arguments are spiraling into such heights of hysteria that now they're attacking anybody who even wants to cut the most absurd discretionary spending. As far as they're concerned, you take a nickel away from Uncle Sam and you're a monster. And that just seems frantic and desperate to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, keep in mind the entire left's raison d'etre is to grow government, right? is to grow government and to shrink the purview of the individual and businesses. And for them to give an inch anywhere is blasphemy. 
And they cite what for them was the 2011 debt fights that resulted in caps, or which didn't result even in capping the spending. This resulted in the deceleration of spending growth. And the, the left is under enormous pressure here, putting enormous pressure on the administration to force the Republicans to capitulate. And I don't think they will. Well, what's going to happen if the Republicans don't throw in the towel? Because you know the next thing that's going to come out is, oh, you guys hate poor people and you want to take away Social Security and you're going to shut down the government and then we're going to boil you in oil. Yeah, that's exactly what the, the tactic they're going to try uh, to roll out. And they're going to try to uh, engage in brinksmanship, the left is, with Republicans on that issue. However, I don't think it's going to work this time. The, I, I think the end game here is going to be some sort of shrinkage on the discretionary side or possibly, and I'm not saying this is necessarily good or bad, because it, it could be either because the devil's in the details, is some sort of Simpson-Bowles commission where there is a um, committee or a commission drawn up, you know, equal numbers of people on the left and right that are out of office with a guarantee that there will be an up or down vote in the House or Senate. This almost came to fruition with regard to the Obama administration. The Obama administration, as uh, zealous as they were with regard to growing government, um, really refused to bring that whole idea to its full, um, to bring it to, to fruition and accept it. But uh, it's going to the, de- the the left is good. The, dem- the administration is going to have to capitulate to some degree because they will own an economic meltdown going into 2024. You know, the the Republicans are sailing against some headwinds here. They always are when they want to cut back government spending, because you remember what happened under Obama. We had shutdown theater, where they put on all these theatrical performances of shutting down state parks and all these other things. And then the media would show up and say, oh, my God, they shut down the park. Look at these crying children. And they just kept that up, you know, until they, they finally caved. And yet the Republicans really ought to be able to go to reasonable people, Americans who have to balance their own checkbooks, and say, isn't it about time we stop spending money on the crazy? things you know is it really true that uncle sam can't make do with a dollar less and we have to give up more of our freedom more of our economy to, to fuel this ever-growing government monster where does this end well you may that's a great point and but i think the mistake the left is making here is assuming that past is prologue and we live in a very different environment with regard to public attitudes on debt um, interest rates in the economy than we did in 20, in 2011. And it's a mistake for the Democrats to think that those tactics that worked then are going to work now. Um, survey after survey show that debt is a government debt is a bigger issue. And it's going to become even more so as interest rates go up. And that the Fed is forced to do this to combat with the, the expansionary fiscal policy of the administration that is engaged in, which created inflation in the first place. Um, when people are paying higher interest rates, there's going to be more of an appetite or an understanding or an easier case to be made by Republicans for, hey, interest rates are going up because every time you want to borrow money, you're competing with the government. And that's an easier case to make, um, especially now with debt being at the forefront and in a rising interest rate environment, neither one of which was really the case in 2011. And also inflation. I mean, the Republicans should be making a case that inflation is taxing the crap out of all of us in order to make up for profligate government spending that they're causing this. And I notice every time inflation comes up, the Democrats, the Biden administration, they get very sweaty. They really don't like it when people yeah. start talking and about then, inflation. And you, 
And you cut right to the heart of it right there. And that's exactly what Republican messaging needs to be right now is focused on uh, COVID to an extent and how and how and why we got into this environment where everyday Americans are being hurt and what the Democrats have done to bring that about. And that needs to be there needs to be clarity of purpose and clarity of messaging on that point. Uh, to put more pressure on the Democrats, because when they see public opinion on this start to go not the way it did in 2011, um, a better deal can be cut. Now, one of the declared candidates for the Republican presidential nomination is Vivek Ramaswamy, kind of a a, a dark horse businessman candidate. And uh, he came out the other day and said, if you elect me, I'm going to fire half the federal government. That's his proposal. Trim the federal payroll by 50 percent. How's that for an opening bid? Are people going to get behind that? If that were, if that, that, that's a great, that's a start. I mean, that's what I said, right? But here's the thing, right? To really bring that off, you can only go one of two ways by reforming civil service laws or by, by attrition, as there are more government retirement, you can, you can kill it on the vine, government payrolls by just not replacing people as they retire and restructuring um, you know, each executive department. And that would rec- obviously requires winning the presidency. And I think it also requires winning both the House and the Senate, because you're not going to get civil service reform unless you have a filibuster-proof majority, which is not really in the cards for either side. But you can trim it, uh, you can trim it through retirements. You know, back when the big debt uh, ceiling battle was being fought under Obama, the really epic one during his second term, I remember you had people like Rand Paul, if I recall. He had his, his penny plan for balancing the budget. And you had all these very reasonable approaches where we just trim a little bit here and there and we'll get down to, you know, a controllable deficit in a couple of years. And they were treated like lunatics, you know, for even suggesting such an idea. Are, are we still in an environment, even after all this inflation and, uh, and these interest rates, where people still are not willing to listen to even such a modest proposal as that okay well first of all politically no we're in a very different place but the case has to be made there has to be a connection drawn for the american people between government spending inflation and why they're hurting and that's a case that needs to be made and made and economics need to be pointed out to the american people and that's not happening right now but it could be easily done John Jordan, CEO of Jordan Winery, a lawyer and a Fox News contributor. Thank you for joining us. I'm John Hayward sitting in for Alan today while he's on assignment. Thank you very much for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.